Hello and welcome to episode 206 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter slash X, Instagram and or Facebook. Also follow me on Blue Sky if you're on there as well. In this episode, we hear from Jihan Dizdarolu. He is an associate professor in the political science and international relations department at Bashkent University in Ankara and associate fellow at the Istanbul Policy Institute. He's also the author of Turkish-Greek Relations, Foreign Policy in a Securitization Framework, published by Edinburgh University Press. Appearing around the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Republic of Turkey, the book gives us a holistic view of relations between Turkey and Greece over that time. Of course, the foundation of Turkey came after years of war against Greek forces in Anatolia, and that cultural and historical closeness has always made ties between Ankara and Athens particularly fraught, particularly intimate, and indeed particularly prone to crises. The book shows how relations have gone through various cycles of improvement and deterioration from the early era of the Republic of Turkey to today. At times, those periods of deterioration have even brought the two countries to the brink of war. We had this conversation before the hellish recent developments in Israel and Palestine, so we don't address how the current regional turbulence might change the circumstances, but so far it seems the ongoing tentative rapprochement between Turkey and Greece, after years of tensions over so many issues, is perhaps unsurprisingly continuing unaffected. We talk about that rapprochement, how robust or otherwise it is, as well as much else in the interview. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together and I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It is extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks, and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in Ivy Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by Ivy Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. 
To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Jihan Dizdarolu. Top Turkish and Greek officials have been meeting for months and the two countries are scheduled to hold a high-level cooperation council meeting on December the 7th. That comes after recent years when tensions rose massively over various issues, triggering speculation even that the two were heading to war once again after almost 100 years. We talk about the fate of the normalisation process in more detail later on. But I started by asking Jihan whether he's been surprised by this most recent thaw in relations between the two countries. Actually, I don't, uh, because when you look at the Turkish-Greek relations, so it is always an ups and downs. Uh, it's kind of a vicious cycle. So we have seen improvements in the relationship and deteriorations in the relationship, and it happens throughout the history. So this is the reason that I don't, I didn't surprise uh, when I see the rapprochement between the two countries. And we're going to come on to the broader framework around that latest rapprochement later on. What your book does is really it gives it goes through chronologically the modern history, really, of Turkey-Greece relations. And it looks at that broader framework, how different historical periods, how the conditions of those periods have shaped that relationship very closely. You really start with the beginning of the Republican era in Turkey, so after 1923. And during this early Republican era, you talk of this really interesting period of rapprochement that occurred within 10 years, really, of the two countries being at war, essentially. So Turkey and Greece went through this period of rapprochement, friendship. They signed a treaty of friendship in 1930. And obviously, that is a huge shift from just seven years before when they were still at war. And you talk about the conditions behind that rapprochement, various treaties and protocols signed, even the Greek side nominating Ataturk for the Nobel Peace Prize in uh, 1934, which was really a surprising thing when you think about it. But one of the points that you make in the book that I don't think is very well known about this period or not well appreciated enough is the fact that this rapprochement actually was motivated in some degree by the threat that was perceived by both countries towards Italy and the threat that Italy posed. So Italy was seen as being this power that wanted to expand in in the region, had designs in the Aegean, and therefore it posed this real threat to Turkey and Greece. So could you just talk about how that external threat of Italy, forgotten now in a way, but at the time was really key in motivating the two sides, these two old enemies, to, to come together in the early 1930s? Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, as you mentioned, the idea behind the friendship in the 1930s was a common threat of Italy, and both countries came together against a common threat. And it was not just the 30s, but also in the 1950s. You will see that after the or following the Second World War, the two countries having lots of problems, but they have a common threat out there, like the Soviet Union. So this is the reason that they just try to be involved in the friendship rather than having problems with each other. So uh, I think the 1930s is quite important because both countries were conflict-fatigued countries. They were fought with each other right after the 
First World War. And the idea behind this period of friendship is both the common threat and also desire of the both leaders in both in Turkey and Greece to modernize, to develop, to have some economic development in their countries. So I think without overestimating the role of the uh, common threat, I think we need to point out the courageous and bold steps by both Atatürk and Venizelos. They put all the problems aside and focus on the cooperation and friendship. And as you mentioned, they, they, they signed several treaties and even uh, Venizelos nominated uh, Atatürk as a Nobel Peace Prize while they were negotiating over the establishment of the Balkan Entente in 1934. So this is the reason that it is an interesting period. So when you look at one side, there is a Venizelos who was elected as the prime minister of Greece and he tried to modernize his country. On the other hand, there was Mustafa Kemal Atatürk who was the founder of the uh, Republic of Turkey and he tried to rebuild the national unity in a newly established republic. So they just used the common threat to bring the countries or their countries' interests together. So I think that it is possible to evaluate this rapprochement period as a result of initiative of uh, two courageous leaders and also the common threat. You mentioned there that the Cold War framework and the fact that both Turkey and Greece were in NATO and also shared this sense of the Soviet Union being a threat as well, that also helped put a lid on tensions in later decades. Obviously, both countries were in NATO by the 1950s, and this shared NATO membership for many decades afterwards basically put a lid on tensions which did occasionally threaten to boil over into outright hostility. You write that, quote, during the Cold War, the differences between Turkey and Greece on several issues brought the countries to the brink of war and threatened the stability and security of the Western Bloc. However, the potential burden of assuming responsibility for war persuaded leaders on both sides to avoid escalation, and all crises were ultimately diffused with the support of the US and the EU within the NATO system. Could you just elaborate on this point, how major tensions between the two sides, particularly over Cyprus that flared up, were always somehow limited by the fact that both Greece and Turkey were NATO allies? Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, as a part of the Western Bloc and the members of uh, NATO, Greece and Turkey as two allies had to keep tension low, either because of third parties' involvement or maybe because of the common threat that have to, uh, they have to deal with during the uh, Cold War period, namely the Soviet Union. So, of course, as I said, the third parties' involvement uh, was quite crucial in that era because United States of America, NATO, or other individual third parties on both sides prevented any escalations between Turkey and Greece. So when the parties had problems, third parties encouraged or forced Turkey and Greece to keep the tension low. This happened with the problems related to Cyprus, the Aegean, and so on. And it prevented hot war between the two sides. If I gave a concrete example from the past, we saw it during the 1960s when there was there was an escalation because of the agency. They signed Berne Declaration in 1976, and we saw the very same problems or tensions in 1980s, and they just came together 
in the Davos summit, and they just initiated the Davos spirit in late 1980s. In the Cyprus problem, we also same the very same attitude because United States, NATO, or other Western bloc allies, they just intervene to the problem and they just try to keep the tension low between the parties. I should also point out neither leader or the country is in a position to fight each other given their economic and military capabilities. So it is always, it has always been risky for any decision makers from Turkey and Greece to take on the risk and the responsibility of a hot war while all the Western bloc were dealing with a common threat out there. And of course, this situation changed with the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And obviously, that led to a completely different environment in international politics. And you talk in the book about how the post-Cold War period led to an increase in rivalries and tensions between states and within states. So it was really a new, unstable environment in the 1990s. And this was definitely the case in Turkey-Greece relations as well. The 1990s saw these two countries stumble into a range of crises over territorial waters in the Aegean, uh, including obviously the Kardak or Emir incident. There was tension over Greece's purchase of S-300 air defense missiles and obviously also the capture of PKK leader Öcalan at the Greek embassy in Kenya towards the end of the decade. So how did the post-Cold War order in the 1990s and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, so the removal of that threat, essentially, how did that specifically give rise to these this flourishing, really, of tensions? Flourishing is probably the wrong word there, but... How did that situation specifically give rise uh, to these tensions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, right after the Cold War, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, both countries felt decline in their significance for their Western partners. And it was a period, actually, when there were important changes in international politics and regional politics as well, because there were many border changes uh, and there were uh, new states established in the vicinity of both countries. So while both countries were trying to adapt with the new security atmosphere uh, around them, there were several issues that really the tension between the two. So it was a period when we saw the incident in the Aegean island, which we call as the Kardak email crisis in late 1995. Or we saw the Greek Cypriot administration application to the European Union to become full member. And we saw the entry into force of the United Nations Convention of Love of the Sea, which triggered the Greece desire to extend its territorial waters. And then uh, it created some reaction from the Turkish government. And you will see during this period, Turkey's close partnership with the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, or let's say the Northern Cyprus, as the international actors know. And of course, we can add many others which coincided in this period. For instance, this period is quite critical for Turkey because of the terrorism issue and because of the, let's say, unstable administration in Turkey or all the domestic problems, economic problems in Turkey. They all added new tensions to the already existing problems. And this is the reason that I identified the 1990s in my book as the highly securitized period of Turkish foreign policy, because many problems between the two countries, of course, they have a historical background of all these problems, but they just all flourish during this period. And also the regional and the international politics affected both countries' security and foreign policy decision-making in this period. 
Now, after 1999, Turkish-Greek relations entered this period for a few years of rapprochement that went on for over a decade, really, probably until 2016. But we'll come on to that. And that timing for that rapprochement might be quite surprising, actually, because it came after the Nadir that followed the uh, capture of Öcalan at that Greek embassy in, in Kenya. And often in the kind of popular account of this rapprochement, people talk about earthquake diplomacy. So both countries suffered earthquakes. Obviously, the earthquake in northern northwest Turkey in 1999 caused, you know, immense death and damage and destruction. And uh, there was this earthquake diplomacy where Greek post-earthquake rescuers uh, were sent over. And this kind of got the ball rolling in the warming up of relations between the two sides, fostering a kind of empathy and solidarity between citizens of the two countries. But you actually, in the book, pour a bit of cold water on this idea of earthquake diplomacy. You say, actually, reconciliation started due to a chain of events rather than based on a simplistic view of natural disasters. And you kind of suggest that if the conditions for rapprochement hadn't been right, then earthquake diplomacy alone would not have been enough. So why did rapprochement begin in 1999? What were the factors behind it? Mm-hmm. Actually, I should maybe start this uh, answering this question by saying that I have been concentrating on the subject of Turkish-Greek relations for the last 15 years and so on since my master's studies. And while studying the relationship between the two countries, I tried to understand ups and downs in the process. What has changed? What was the reason for the deterioration or the improvement of the relations? So what attracted me to write this book actually on this topic is one of the breakthrough in the Turkish-Greek relations that happened in 1999 because the two countries entered into a promising rapprochement process and it was quite interesting to see because as I said a couple of minutes ago the 1990s was the intense period in the relationship and the two countries even came to the brink of war so all the problems or challenges in the bilateral relations were there and there were no tangible changes in any of them so what made this rapprochement possible so when we look at the existing literature out there, many people on both sides have focused various aspects of the rapprochement to explain it, including the role of civil societies, including the earthquake diplomacy, including the role of foreign minister or the Europeanization of the foreign policies of both countries or the role of the third parties and the civil society on both sides. By acknowledging all these contributions, I decided to offer a new perspective by focusing on the discourses of Turkish policymakers. And I try to understand why, how and to what extent Turkey's foreign policy towards Greece was securitized and desecuritized. And as you mentioned, rather than a simplistic view of the earthquake diplomacy, there have been multiple factors that triggered the rapprochement. And I believe that one of the main reasons, as we've seen in the current relationship between the two countries, change of the discourse of the decision makers. Of course, this rhetoric change or discourse change triggered by many other factors like Turkey's eagerness to become partner of the European Union, Turkey's eagerness to solve its problems and deal with the economic problems rather than focusing on the security aspect of the relationship. Turkey prioritized the economic benefits uh, with other countries. They all triggered such a rapprochement in 1999. So following the PKK leader Abdullah Hocalan's capture in the Kenyan embassy of Greece, many people expected to see deterioration, but somehow 
they just manage to build a friendship. Of course, there are, as I said, there are many factors behind it. And we should give the credit to the two foreign ministers on both sides, Ismail Jem and Papandreou. They just took bold steps in order to build this atmosphere. So, uh, as I said, it is a result of several factors and they all help each other in order to build this rapprochement period. Yeah, I first came to Turkey in 2010, and I really remember distinctly in those years that nothing seemed like it could be further from the agenda than Turkey-Greece tensions. So these were the years where this rapprochement had really got going. And the idea of Turkey and Greece going to war, it seemed at the time like a story from a past age, basically irrelevant now, something from the distant past. The sting really seemed to have been taken out of the issue it seems quite remarkable in retrospect that, that that was the prevailing atmosphere at the time. Mm-hmm. And maybe uh, another point that let me add it to my previous answer, because I forgot to mention, you just pointed out the 2016 for the end of the rapprochement process. Actually, I have a different uh, understanding in terms of ending the rapprochement process, because I think the rapprochement process continued after 2016 as well. When you look at the relationship, you will see Greek prime minister visited Turkey, Turkish president visited Greece right after the failed coup, coup attempt in Turkey. And I believe that the rapprochement process continued until Turkey's uh, signature of the delimitation agreement with Libya and the crisis in 2020. So when you look at the statements on both sides, you will see that both leaders or both decision makers on either side of the agency, you will see that they are very careful in terms of blaming each other or they have been continuing their positive discourse towards each other. So I can just uh, honestly say that the rapprochement process lasted beyond the 2016. One issue that we haven't mentioned in much detail is Cyprus. And obviously during this period of rapprochement, there was a reunification referendum in 2004 in Cyprus. And obviously Cyprus in previous decades have been the major issue complicating ties and bringing the countries at times to the brink of war. But the disagreement over the 2004 referendum where basically Turkish Cypriots voted to approve reunification, the plans under the UN, and the Greek Cypriot side, the voters, they voted against it. Basically, that obviously put the cause of Cyprus reunification back and basically killed it, essentially, it seems now. But the disagreement over that 2004 referendum didn't actually have the same effect on Turkey-Greece ties, it seems. So the rapprochement just continued. Mm -hmm. Is that correct or... Yeah, yeah, it's correct. So actually, during the rapprochement process, you will see that there have been many problems out there. And both countries, Turkey and Greece, did not have any agreement over the core problems. But they just tried to put them aside, as the Atatürk and Menizelos did in the uh, past. So they just focused on the economic benefits of uh, their relationship. They tried to benefit from the dialogue that started in 2002. They tried to to work on together over the technical committees in order to find some solution to their problem. While saying that, I'm aware of the fact that it won't be possible to find any possible solution to any of the existing problems between the two countries. Because even these two countries could not agree on the number of their problems, but they try to ignore or let's say they try to postpone all the problems and they just wanted to continue their 
relationship. And in 2004, the referendum in Cyprus did not affect the relationship between the two countries because it was the time when Turkey was very close to starting the accession negotiation with the European Union. And when you look at the Greek side, they have been trying to improve their economic condition in order to benefit from their membership in the European Union. So this is the reason that without focusing on the problems, they just focus on the positive atmosphere in their relationship. And after 2016, a new set of tensions emerged over various issues. And you describe in the book how these crises led to a nadir in Turkey-Greece relations in 2020. And disagreements were multifaceted. They involved the migration issue. There was the Hagia Sophia's conversion to a mosque. There were disagreements over territory in the Aegean and the East Mediterranean and maritime boundaries there. Turkey's energy exploration in the East Mediterranean. All these disagreements sparked this latest crisis in relations. And you actually end the book, I guess you finished writing the book when these crises were still very much on the agenda. And at the time, there were some pundits, both in Turkey and in the West, confidently predicting that things were heading in the direction of a hot war between Turkey and Greece. Did you also share that assessment at the time? <laughs> to be honest, I believe that every single incident and tension between the two sides is serious. And there are many people uh, on both sides who expect the fight because of the political benefits. So these people who like to take the advantage of uh, national sentiments and have always played the blame game, especially during the elections pe election periods. But I believe that even though these tensions are quite serious, to be honest, I didn't expect any hot war between the two countries. Because we had several problems in the past and these two countries very well educated because of all these crises they know how to play with the tension i know i sound a little bit weird by saying this but whenever our western allies interview with us whether turkey will hit greece i always tell them it won't be happen in future actually these are the two nato allies why do we expect any escalation, any war between the two allies? These two countries benefited from the escalations, from the risk of tensions between the two sides, especially during the election periods. And the 2020 crisis was kind of a reaction of Turkey's isolation in the Eastern Mediterranean. It is kind of a culmination of several factors in Turkish foreign policy. And we saw there were some minor collisions during the 2020 crisis, but no one just exaggerated the situation as they did in 1995 after the Kardak crisis or during the Kardak crisis. So, as I said, it was kind of a reaction of Turkey's isolation in the Eastern Mediterranean. But having said that, said that I should also point out that the isolation of Turkey in the region was a result of Turkey's own policy preferences rather than the other countries' initiatives. So when you look at the regional alliances that just started to appear in the region, it excluded Turkey. And as a reaction, Turkey just tried to protect both it is and also the Turkish Cypriot's rights by just signing the delimitation maritime jurisdiction agreement with Libya, Libya government. And this triggered the tension. 
But as I said, both countries try to use this tension for the domestic consumption as well, because there were some elections out there. So they just try to play with this uh, national sentiment as usual during the election cycles. So this is the reason that we need to see the third parties involved in order to ease the tension between the two countries. But it's always important to keep in mind that any incidents or crisis have always potential to become a serious tension between Turkey and Greece, even a hot war. But I'm not expecting a war. Maybe I am too naive uh, by saying this, but these are the NATO allies. We shouldn't expect any conflict between Turkey and Greece in near future as well. You mentioned the election factor there, but the weird thing is that the two countries had elections this year and there were a lot of predictions before those elections that the two sides, the governments on either side, Erdogan and Mitsotakis, would, they'd find it too tempting to go through an election without trading rhetorical barbs and benefiting from this uh, nationalist sentiment on this issue. But actually, the elections in both countries didn't feature either country as a, as a big issue. And uh, the rapprochement continued despite the fact that the elections went on. So it kind of confounded that theory of uh, elections inevitably producing a new uh, plunge in ties between the two sides as leaders clash over various issues. And obviously, we're talking now, there has been this rapprochement since 2022, basically between the two sides, a step back from the brinkmanship, particularly on Turkey's part in the East Mediterranean. We don't see those reports of energy exploration so much anymore in these contested waters. And that's obviously also in line with Turkey's broader dialing down of tensions with various regional neighbours. So what do you think of that rapprochement? What do you think of the fate of that rapprochement? As I said, I'm optimistic because the relationship between the two countries has always been marked by problems, conflicts and rivalry. And there are many people on both sides who would prefer the countries to fight with each other. But I think there is a need for some optimistic people out there to talk about the rare cooperation and the dialogue periods. I'm not expecting to see any solution to the existing problems between these two countries because I'm not naive in that sense. But given the past tensions or the existing problem between the two sides, it is important to keep the channels of dialogue open in order to avoid any escalation and incidents that could lead a serious tension. There are also some other strong signals and efforts on both sides to maintain uh, this atmosphere. And this made me to think optimistic about the fate of the current rapprochement. Uh, at the very beginning of September, Greek foreign minister visited his counterpart in Turkey right before the leaders met in New York. They just looked for the possible areas for cooperation and how to maintain the positive atmosphere. And if I'm not mistaken, the deputy of foreign minister will met in next month to discuss possible avenues for dialogue and positive agenda. And in December, both countries will hold their seventh Greek-Turkish high-level cooperation council in Thessaloniki. This high-level cooperation council was important because of it was kind of an attempt to institutionalize the relationship between the two countries. And it has been suspended since 2016 and also canceled 
after the March 2022 meeting between Erdogan and Mitsotakis in Istanbul because of the Mitsotakis uh, statement in the U.S. Congress. So they just decided to cancel it, but they just reiterated all these attempts to improve the relationships. And as there are no elections in either country in the near future, it is possible to sustain this optimistic stance. So it is a good time for both countries to invest in cooperation rather than detention, because most of the time the tension between Turkey and Greece causes serious waste of time and it prevents parties to cooperate in potential areas. There are many issues out there that the two countries can work together. It can be in on climate change, it can be on natural resources, it can be on some other aspects, fighting with the forest fires, academic cooperation and scientific research. These all can be a way of uh, building trust and goodwill between the two parties. But while saying that, let me also remind that it is possible to see some short-term tensions in the relationship. When you look at the relationship, historical past, it is quite normal in bilateral relations. There are lots of ups and downs in the relationship. But as I said, I'm on the optimistic side of the positive relations. Yeah, and that's maybe surprising because in the book, you describe tensions as almost a default setting. So we see these periods of rapprochement periodically come around but they're always temporary and going on much longer and always in the background are these bubbling tensions, chronic disagreements over various issues between the sides. And it almost means that rapprochement is by definition fragile and temporary. And the other structural factor that looping back to the beginning of the episode, we should probably mention here is the fact that there isn't the same kind of external threat shared by both countries. So previously, we were talking about Italy before in the 1930s. And then obviously, uh, the Soviet outside threat uh, that both countries perceived as NATO allies. Obviously, those two things don't exist anymore. And there isn't that shared sense of outside threat. So structurally, there's an issue there that the previous force that was nudging the two countries together in these periods of rapprochement doesn't really exist anymore. So there is that kind of freedom for the for the two countries to explore um, tensions, you could mm-hmm. say. So on those factors, it would seem to suggest pessimism, actually, and that in the long term or medium to long term, you know, there is just going to be this inevitable return to tensions between the two sides. What do you make of that? Yeah, actually, uh, to be honest, in, in the book, I try to understand how the Turkish decision makers handle the problems. Whenever there are tensions, most of the time, they or Turkish decision makers uh, just choose to securitize the issue rather than desecuritization. But when you look at the last term, especially uh, the last rapprochement started in 1999, you will see completely a different stance by the Turkish decision makers. Let me give you a concrete example about that. In 1995, in late 1995, when a Turkish ship ran aground in the disputed waters, both countries choose the way of handling the problem in a secretized manner. But on the other hand, you should also keep in your mind that both countries first try to solve the problems through the diplomatic channels. Once the issue appeared in on media, then they escalated. So it is kind of a tradition in the relationship. But we have the very same attitude, or let's say we have a very similar incident in 2006. So when the Turkish and Greek jets had their routine dogfights over the agency, they collided with each other. And unfortunately, a Greek pilot lost his life. 
But when you look at the discourse of both countries, they just prefer to focus on the friendship and not to exaggerate the incidents between the two countries. So they just try to handle the problem in the normal political processes. So this is the reason that in the latest period, uh, it started after the earthquake and the train crash. So I just optimistic because of the handling of the problems by two countries' decision makers. Nowadays, they just choose to use a friendly discourse in their relationship. I don't know how long it will last. But as I said, right after the latest rapprochement in 1999, even though they had lots of problems, they heavily invested on the friend atmosphere. And maybe today, if we just think about the existing Russian-Ukrainian war, there are still some threats out there, even though Turkey didn't consider Russia as a threat in its foreign policy. But there is always risk. And as a part of the Western bloc, Turkey and Greece should continue their friendship in their relationship. So this is the reason that I'm optimistic, even though if I just criticize Turkish handling of issue of Greece in its traditional foreign policy in a critical point of view in my book. That was Jihan Dizdarolu. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 206. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on social media. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter slash X, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Follow me, William Armstrong on Blue Sky. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.